I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. So a lot of us run not only wine programs, but bar programs too. And there's certain ingredients that come in and out of fashion, kind of like wines come in and out of fashion behind the bar. And one of those ingredients is cranberry juice cocktail. And in fact, cranberry juice cocktail has really changed. It's shaped a new generation of cocktails, and it's, it's especially helped cocktails in the 90s. But where do cranberries come from, and what's the history of cranberry production in the U.S.? Did you know that cranberries are just one of a few fruits that are native to North America? And they were a wild diet staple of Native Americans for centuries on end, long before the colonial times. As early as 1683, pilgrim settlers were, were using cranberries. They were making juices out of them and eating them, in, eating them for food. Later on, in 1816, cranberries started to be cultivated and seriously marketed to urban populations. So 1816, these are the times of, you know, kind of the wild, wild west. And people were going cranberries in these bogs up in New England and then selling them either canned or fresh. So, you know, in the 1800s, you could find canned cranberries and fresh cranberries being sold. And the real boon for cranberry production happened in 1918 when a bunch of cranberry cooperatives actually pooled their money and they raised $5,000. And imagine how much $5,000 was back in 1918. I mean, that's a lot of money. So they raised $5,000 and they put it towards cranberry advertising. And right after they did this, uh, sales rose to over $1 million for the cranberry industry. And this is where cranberries really got started in the U.S. And this was also right before Prohibition. Now still, these early 20th century cranberries were sold either canned or fresh. But because, of, uh, because they weren't made into juices yet, the market for them was relatively seasonal unless you could get the canned versions around. Now in 1930, a company called Ocean Spray put out a cranberry juice cocktail. And this was a blend of sugar, sometimes apple juice, uh, water, and, and straight cranberry juice. Now, straight cranberry juice is very different from the cranberry juice cocktail that we all know and have grown up with. And if you've had this, you know it's crazy bitter and intense and wild. But the phrase cranberry juice, even though it refers to this 100% bitter cranberry juice, the phrase cranberry juice is frequently used to reference cranberry juice cocktail, which causes a lot of confusion. And this actually leads other people to refer to straight-up cranberry juice as 100% cranberry juice. 
to heighten the confusion, if you look at any cocktail recipe, it'll say cranberry juice, but they really mean cranberry juice cocktail. Could you imagine making a Cosmo with, with uh, straight cranberry juice? <laughs> that would throw a lot of people off. So the cranberry industry is just getting going in the 1930s with Ocean Spray putting out their cranberry juice cocktail. Then Prohibition comes along, 1919 to 1933 era, and this affects the cranberry industry. Now, cranberry products revolve around seasonal family holidays. At this time, the big ones were Thanksgiving and Christmas, and the industry, uh, the cranberry industry, consciously chose to not associate themselves with alcohol in any way, which could potentially alienate their big family consumer base. So this is how things went during Prohibition. But 1945 comes along, and Ocean Spray starts to play with a cocktail that they call the Red Devil. And this is vodka and cranberry juice cocktail. Also, there was a cocktail called the Toll House Cocktail, which had cranberry juice and rum, but the rum was optional. And in 1955, they released another uh, Toll House Cocktail version that called for cranberry juice cocktail and vodka, which was optional. So 1959 comes along, cranberry juice is kind of taken off, and the U.S. Department of Health announces that aminotriazole, which is a really dangerous herbicide, had tainted the cranberry crop. And what happens is, in 1959, cranberry sales just, they go down. People don't know what they're going to do. Cranberry growers start thinking, like, we need to diversify our product. Um, and it's this time that Ocean Spray releases their first cranberry juice in the form of a cran apple blend. And then later on, uh, also in 1959, Ocean Spray partnered with Tropico, and they released uh, this drink, a bottle drink called the Seabreeze. And this was made of Ocean Spray cranberry juice and vodka. Now, later on in 1965, they advertised the Cape Cotter, their version being uh, cranberry juice and vodka. So this is pretty interesting how all of these cranberry juice cocktail cocktails really come from the cranberry juice producers. And they're trying to find a way to diversify their product, especially after the cranberry crash in 1959. 1980s come along. Let's fast forward a little bit. Health reports. Oh, cranberries are so good for your health. People start drinking cranberry juice all the time. And a lot of cocktails uh, started to come out around this, this time period and before, between the, between the 60s and the 90s. And these cocktails are the Cape Cotter, the Madras, the Bog Fog, the Harpoon, the Rangoon Ruby. These became sort of bar staples and, and bars in the middle part of the century. They started to stock cranberry juice cocktail as if, you know, as a, re as a regular bar staple behind the bar. So cranberry juice in the 1990s became a, a mainstay behind most bars in the U.S. It was one of those juices you could ask for in almost any restaurant. It has a long shelf life. It lasts forever. It's versatile. You can have it as a juice. You can mix it in a cocktail. But now it's interesting to see in the last 10 years or so, there's been a real backlash against cranberry juice. People don't want to use it anymore in bars for the same reason that they wanted to use it in the 1990s, because it really doesn't go bad. It has a long shelf life. And nowadays, there's this focus on using fresh products, fresh juices, fresh, um, fresh fruits behind a bar. So most bars, especially in you know, urban areas like New York City and stuff, you won't find cranberry juice anymore. Bartenders are really following this kind of farm-to-table ethos. They're, they're following their chefs on this. And they're moving away from all this kind of stuff. In fact, even simple syrup today <laughs> is hard to find because people want to use like agave nectar and other kind of sweeteners that are really natural without having to touch um, processed white sugar. So cranberry juice cocktail is now on the way out. and It's hard for people to find these days. Chain restaurants and dive bars, you still find it just because it's, uh, it's really popular. But what I want to know is, is there a place for 100% cranberry juice this original cranberry juice, the really bitter stuff behind a bar. Could this be something that we could work a lot more with? 
Could 100% cranberry juice be used like with an Amaro or as an Amaro in some sort of cocktail or something like that? Could it be used to get that, that bitter flavor in certain cocktails? And I think that definitely, yes, it can. It's kind of expensive, and it would be like a whole new world for, for cranberry juice behind bars, behind main, mainstay bars. But it could definitely happen at some point. And it's funny because during cranberry season, I've seen great bars use fresh cranberries. They'll make syrups and they'll make garnishes, and they'll they'll do playful kind of tongue-in-cheek references to the Cosmo. Um, the kind of almost almost making it farcical in terms of referencing the Cosmo, and yet still, so many bartenders won't even touch the cocktail, the cranberry juice cocktail anymore, because there's still this uh, there's still this ethos to kind of like completely divorce your thinking from all the the cosmopolitan sex and city cultural baggage that comes with it and stuff. But let's go back to 100% original cranberry juice. Really interesting stuff, and could have a great place behind our bars. Think about it, New York and the rest of the world. It's not enough to make great wine. You also have to reach the consumer that appreciates that wine. And that's where Offset is an incredible asset. Offset is an independent brand design and commerce technology company that connects with wineries on a human level to help them connect with consumers on a human level. Offset is based in wine country and staffed by creative strategists and technologists who are superb at helping create and evolve wine brands through visual identity and package design, developing the look, feel, and tone of your web content, as well as building beautiful and effective websites powered by their proprietary e-commerce platform, Offset Commerce. That's why leaders like Frog Sleep, Grace Family Vineyards, and Rain Winery already rely on Offset. Reach out to the brilliant team at Offset at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T partners with an s.com offset is focused on the wine industry and can embrace the nuanced needs of your wine brand john bonnet welcome back to the show super to be here again nice to see you so you just released the new California wine. I did. How long did it take you to write the book? It took about two years. Um, and uh, with the, the caveat that it took uh, several years before that to sort of um, gather, gather my thoughts and, and to, to finally figure out what exactly was going on. And I think, I think really, in some ways, the process probably started in 2008. Uh, and it just took a long time to sort of figure it out. In 2010, I wrote this piece for Sever called The New California Wine. Uh, and that was the catalyst. That was realizing that there was something going on that not only was beyond sort of a little blip, was was really something revolutionary uh, in California and, and in sort of a generation of winemakers, uh, but also affirmed what I had hoped that I would find when I moved out to California in 2006. Because when I got there, uh, it's I was in this strange position where I was suddenly in kind of a prominent uh, post uh, in terms of writing about California wine. Uh, and yet I was a New Yorker. I'd come from the East Coast. I'd grown up uh, drinking California wine, Mondavi and whatnot, but also wine from the rest of the world. And my father sort of instilled in me all of all of these different uh, great wines. And so I, I arrived um, kind of being exactly what a lot of California winemakers wouldn't be interested in, which is someone who believed that other places in the world were equally good, if not better. And, and really, I was 
miserable in a way when I got there because everything that I had once loved or once thought that I loved about California had gone away, or I seemed to had gone away, and had been replaced by this kind of self-satisfied culture that believed that its wines were superior to everyone else's, that the bigger they were, the better they were, that uh, simple magnitude, simple sort of shock and awe could define what California was. And, and the more shocking and awing it was, the better the wine was and the better it would be scored. And so I began in a way to sort of poke around for what what was meaningful to me out there. Uh, I got sort of a quick start because I showed up on October 30th of 2006. And within about two weeks, I had to choose our winemaker of the year. So that turned out to be Paul Draper from Ridge, who in some ways sort of set the tone for my work for the next several years, because here was a guy who really believed in in the classic beauty of California and the potential of what what this kind of golden land could uh, provide and and believed in a style of wine that that really sort of minimized your work in the cellar, that minimized the intrusions of the winemaker and tried to show the value of place and and the potential of what was there. And, you know, for that, Paul had been sort of shoved off into a corner and people would kind of talk about him as this asterisk. Uh, I mean, Ridge did fine. It had its own audience, but uh, it was very much outside sort of the the mainstream conversation of California. Uh, and so I'm sure uh, by choosing him, that kind of set a tone sort of for where my coverage was going to be going. But it also set a uh, sort of a, a theme for me. And I think within about two years, I started seeing people who interested me. And then, you know, a couple of years later, uh, realized that this was a thing. And what is the thing? I mean, what is new in California? Or or maybe another way to put it would be, what did we not notice was going on in California? There's there's stuff that we didn't notice, but I think for the most part, it's, it's things that are new or else things that are kind of coming back into their more classic form. And what often people write about is, oh, hey, someone's making Verdello from Lodi, someone is making orange wine, whatever it is. And those are interesting sort of side notes, but but really there's a more broad-based uh, theme at work, which is that uh, there is a generation of people in California now who are doing the exact same thing in their own way that the pioneers of the late 60s and early 70s did, the, the Mondavis and the Binyarskis, which is they're looking at California through the prism of global perspective. They're saying, we understand what the great wines of the world are. We believe this is a place that can make them. And we're going to make wines that can show that potential rather than just sort of, you know, out muscling Bordeaux, uh, which is for a long time what California was trying to do, uh, or then, to, you know, out muscling Burgundy, is to say, you know, the way that you get to this is to benchmark yourself against the other great wines of the world to see what the meaning of California is, uh, and then to sort of to to take it out there and and see if it resonates. And and it's interesting if you if if you talk to folks from California, for instance, they you know until the past year or two, uh, one of their common complaints, for instance, was that buyers in New York had no interest and they would just kind of you know push them away, except for the the allocated wines they knew they needed to have on their list for their customers. Customers. Uh, they didn't have an interest in it. They didn't have um, a desire to put put wines on the list to sell them. Um, that's obviously changed in an enormous way. But um, but one of the things that um, that to me that said was that California vintners had lost touch with the global benchmarks. And so what what 
sort of what the overall theme uh, of the book is, what what defines sort of the, the new California is this generation of folks who um, who either had made wine for a long time uh, and been sort of dismissed for the style they made uh, or who are coming in anew and making wines that are that are relevant to the larger world of wine that um, that have a, a distinct sense of place and a perspective uh, and a quality level that again doesn't simply rely on being sort of you know bigger and better or I should say bigger and stronger so why the shift away from the global perspective and mindset in, in California, and then why the shift back to it? What 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 caused those changes to happen? Do you think there, there were a number of things? Um, the the one of them being simply the momentum that came really fast after the Judgment of Paris in 1976, and when you look at how quickly California sort of hit the world stage in the late 70s, early 80s, suddenly became sort of the toast of America right at a time when Americans were starting to drink wine and were interested. Um, there was, uh, you know, there were the perils of sudden fame. Uh, and so when you look at really within a few years, you know, 1982, the Kendall Jackson Vintners Reserve came out right at a time people were sort of starting to think about, oh, maybe I'll drink white wine instead of a cocktail. Uh, and so their Chardonnay and Chardonnay in general with this little bit of sweetness kind of became synonymous with white wine for Americans. Um, you go forward another decade uh, and you had a huge infusion of money, mostly into Napa, but really into the industry overall. Uh, you had um, the uh, replanting that was required um, uh, after sort of the last round of phylloxera. So you had all of these young vine vineyards that were kind of all about sort of producing lots of big ripe fruit and high sugars and kind of an exuberance that people came to assume was the definition of California. Uh, and needless to say, you had a lot of critical feedback through the 90s that more was better. And uh, not just in a in sort of a, a critical way, but, you know, it was directly tied to the amount of money that you would get for your wine. And so through the 90s, you would see, say, Napa Cabernet would, was absolutely soaring in terms of its prices to the point that Robert Parker, who was an enormous mar market driver through that era, was actually complaining about the, the sort of outrageously high prices that the wines that he had championed were starting to... Um, to demand. And so really you you had this very very quick and compressed timeline in which um in which California went from sort of just being glad to be in the conversation with the rest of the world to being told that it was the awesomest of awesome, that it was defying the rest of the world in terms of wine quality uh, and wine potential. And so it's not entirely surprising that vintners who were successful in that era would have come to the conclusion that they were the best. And, and as I think uh, anyone who's studied uh, school psychology will tell you, if you give um, children a an overabundant dose of self-esteem too early and you don't actually make them sort of earn it, uh, you get children who are very self-satisfied and uh, a little bit um, egotistical. And so I would say that's not entirely unlike what happened in California. It was just, it was so fast and there was so much praise. Uh, and this is, to be fair, this is, a, you know, this is a cautionary tale for the next generation as well, that, uh, that it made people stop trying to think about what the role of California should be in the world. Who were some of the people that you started to meet that indicated to you that there was a change afoot back to a different kind of mindset? 
So the the first couple people were, were of course, from the older generation, being Paul Draper and then Josh Jensen at Calera, both of whom had been sort of left out in the wilderness for a while. Um, and at the same time, it's interesting, they, they you know, when, when the American market started to disregard them, they went very heavily into other markets, into Europe, into Asia. And so you would see at the same time, they were having trouble getting recognition in, say, New York or in, in Chicago, that, uh, you know, the Calera wines, for instance, were an absolute cult hit in to, in Tokyo, in Japan, that, uh, that these wines had enormous resonance elsewhere in the world. And then, like I said, starting maybe 2007, 2008, there was a string of folks. Um, there was of course, Abe Scherner at the Scolium Project, who was kind of, you know, the the, the most radical of the radicals. Uh, there was Steve Mathiason, who had kind of made his way into Napa as um, the viticulturist who wasn't David Abreu, um, and then was working with these you know, this combination of kind of classic Bordeaux grapes, Semillon and Sauvignon Blanc, and then classic Friulian grapes, uh, Tokai Friulano and Ribola Gialla, uh, to make this extraordinary kind of Friulian, Napan white wine, um, who tied all these things together. There were the folks at Lioco who, you know, said, how can we show what we believe is a great California terroir through the prism of Chardonnay? Um, there were folks like Arnott Roberts who were really starting to emerge in about 2008, um, who, again, you know, hometown Napa boys who just had a different perspective. They liked drinking Blau Frankish and Jura wine and whatever at home, and they believed that there was a role for the wines that they liked in California. Uh, and so, you know, you I would keep finding these people, Ted Lemon at Literai, who is interesting because he kind of bridges the the, the two generations, but really, you know, came to California with all of this sort of Burgundian experience as as the first winemaker, the first American uh, to run a domain in Burgundy, Guy Rouleau, um, saying, I don't want to make Burgundian wine. I don't believe you should make Burgundian wine in California. That's ridiculous. I believe you should make Californian wine in California in the, not even in the style of, but uh, with the same belief and devotion that the Burgundians hold, uh, if not more so, um, to place being really all that matters, place being uh, the ultimate barometer. And so there were there were more and more of these people who kind of who kind of kept showing up, Bob and Jim Varner at Varner, uh, and it became clear after a while that uh, this wasn't just you know this wasn't just kind of a band of renegades. These were people who were at the top of their game and who were getting slowly more attention, uh, and who clearly were going to start redefining the way that the world viewed California. And it seems like when you talk about a terroir focus uh, from some of the the winemakers that also there's a terroir focus that that's very evident in your book where it tends to take you outside of some of the big name appellations of California that maybe people are more familiar with it tends to take you to places like Lodi like the Sierra foothills like true Sonoma coast uh, comes up what do we find out there that maybe we didn't know about and what brought you back to those areas of the world I mean what is special about these parts of California but the simple part of it is uh, what brought me out there was that the winemakers who I was starting to write about were going out there. Uh, and I think what they saw uh, and what became evident as I was sort of making my way around is that um, while most of the um, most of the interest and most of the discussion for a long time in California terroir had tended to, of course, be about Napa Valley, that makes sense, and about Russian River Valley and maybe Carneros, et cetera, that that the really interesting soils, the potential for greatness was in places that were just starting to be sorted out. 
So even in maybe an, uh, in an obvious way, somewhere like the far Sonoma coast where, you know, people had kept pushing west and farther west and farther west. And eventually you ended up with, with vineyards like Pay or like Hirsch that were about as far out as you were going to go before you were in the ocean uh, and benefited not only from this kind of difficult climate, uh, not even marginal, but just difficult, um, but also had this extraordinary set of soils uh, based uh, on the upheaval of the San Andreas and this kind of mix of, of uh, uplift and sedimentary and all sorts of stuff that um, that had the same complexity that you would look for in, in other great terroirs. Um, but then there were other places that, like the, the foothills where, again, you know, in the gold rush, people were making great wine in the foothills, but it's not convenient. It's not sort of on the way to somewhere except for Lake Tahoe. And so it wasn't somewhere that people obviously said, oh, I'm going to make great wine. And then, you know, the, the problem that befalls most sort of underperforming wine in areas happened, which is that it didn't happen to have a lot of great winemakers who were there who were tackling it. People weren't going up to the foothills saying, I'm going to make world-class wine. They made these kind of big, rowdy, rambunctious, you know, sort of badly oaked, wildly over-alcoholic wines um, and, you know, got, got enough of a business to sort of make it work. But really sort of the people who could be conduits, the, the, the taste makers uh, within the winemaking community had kind of forgotten it until people started going back up there and saying the soil up here, the granite is amazing. Um, there's a guy um, in the foothills in Placerville named Ron Mansfield, who is actually kind of a, uh, an orchardist, a fruit grower, but became sort of the, the go-to viticulturist who uh, planted lots of Rhone varieties, found these amazing granite soils in the American River area that uh, he put lots of Grenache on, lots of Grenache Blanc, Vermentino. Uh, and so it was simply a matter of saying, hey, you, you put really interesting Rhone varieties on great complex soils at 3,000 feet. You go out to Eastern Lodi to the Borden Ranch area and you start putting Verdello in or Tempranillo because it certainly can, can do well in the climate. It can be picked at full ripeness at a relatively moderate moderate level and, and give you a distinctive quality. You go to, say, Paso Robles, which is probably more than almost anywhere else in, in California, the beneficiary of, of what I call in the book big flavor. Um, and you realize that there's these amazing uh, limestone soils uh, that uh, retain an extraordinary freshness in the wine. And and even, let's say, a, a wine like some of the Turley wines from down there, you you know, they are big wines. They're 16, 16 and a half percent, and yet their pH is somewhere in the low threes. Uh, only because that's the the charm of the soils. Um, but there were just were very few people who were willing to say, you know what, let's farm this correctly so that we can get a wine that's distinctive and not just massive. So what is the difference in terms of how wines that you would sum up as New California wines taste in general characteristic terms versus those that weren't? And is it really about grouping up in the past and being different in the future? I mean, is it really about being distinctive now? It is about being distinctive. I, I, I like I said, the 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 phrase that I coined in the book was uh, big flavor. And and it's not just saying, well, this is really high in alcohol. This is really highly oaked. There's, you know, when, when you try to sort of say, okay, these are these are the things that define it, you're always going to find an exception. Well, you know, can't be over 14% alcohol. Eh, you know, most really good Cabernet in California is over 14% alcohol, at least a little bit, um, maybe shy of 15, but, you know, but uh, it doesn't have to be this kind of line in the sand. Zinfandel certainly can kind of, you know, go go north of there. Uh, Grenache can go north of there. It's it's more that you, you look at the complexity that the great wines of the world show, and 
you look at California examples and there are people who are either interested in capturing that regardless of sort of oak regime, et cetera, but who, who obviously are going to tend to use somewhat less new oak, who are going to tend to pick somewhat on the earlier side, who are looking for um, a sense of balance in the fruit, um, and very specifically who are trying to avoid manipulating anything in the cellar, um, you know, whether it's adding water or acid, but obviously removing alcohol, using Velcrin, using all sorts of stuff. But but really, fundamentally, what it comes down to is, are these wines showing a level of complexity that benchmarks them against the rest of the world? Because for a long time, the argument about California style was that it was this massive dose of fruit. It was kind of massive attack of fruit that was that was the definition of California's terroir. That was, as, as Robert Parker said, that's what Mother Nature has given to California. And if you... One, if you dared to sort of diverge from that, you would tend to get punished. But two, uh, you know, it it was it was this sort of false argument. It was saying, well, we're going to use these young vines. We're going to make these overwhelmingly sort of ripe and, a, you know, sort of generous, sweet wines. And we're going to then claim that as our terroir rather than saying, perhaps we make wine that's picked at uh, a level sort of conversant to winemakers elsewhere in the world. Um, they're certainly going to be exuberant. They're going to be interesting wines, but they're going to show complexity. They're going to have the same sort of durability that the great wines from California of the 70s uh, also once showed. And it's interesting now to see how people are going back to them, trying to say, well, how did we get to uh, how do we get to making wines like that that um, that showed us something different in California without simply being sort of uh, you know this this massive thing? Has the focal point of what's a great wine changed for what you might refer to as the new California winemakers? Because you know when I used to talk to the what might be thought of as the old guard now, but the folks around the the nineties, you know, wines like Latour used to come up, Mouton used to come up. You know, we wanted to wines that were in that kind of depth of field but bigger or uh, more grandiose or maybe more accessible younger you know with a different kind of fruit character but now when i see people doing carbonic on Cinso, and that's a wine i like a lot at from turley or i see people doing gamay uh at edmund st john uh and that's another wine i like a lot i mean it seems to me like what they're thinking is great can't be latour right because it's just a whole different different kind of game. Yeah, and and some of it is that there's only a certain number of people who could ever aim to make Latour, um, most of whom do not have the money required at this point to try to even begin to get in that game. But I think beyond that, it's simply a maturity of understanding of the the diversity of great wine in the world. That, yeah, that there can be great Beaujolais. And, and, and honestly, I think some of it is that... Um, you know, in an earlier era, no one even talked about great Beaujolais. No one, no one sort of said, "Oh, I'm I'm going to go out and have a Lapierre off the list in downtown New York," because it was sort of it was this still kind of sideshow if anyone even knew about it. So one of the things is that there's simply an acknowledgement that there is greatness in many, many other parts of the world, that you can have great Beaujolais, you can have great wine from the Jura, you can have great sort of carbonic maceration, Cabernet Franc, um, that the, you know, the Loire holds extraordinary charms, the Roussillon holds extraordinary charms, Austria, that Blaufrankish uh, can really make world-class wines, that that Germany or Greece or Spain, that, you know, Mencia from Rivera Sacra can make world-class wines. Uh, and so I think simply having a generation of winemakers who has that, uh, that, um, uh, sort of, um, 
diversity of taste uh, and that is just that omnivorous uh, allows them to say, you know, we're going to look for what's interesting and what we can work for. Uh, and one of the really interesting pieces of that um, going to sort of the Edmund St. John or, or to sort of, you know, Old Vines Infidel is that um, one of the things on which kind of the big flavor era of California was predicated was this, this post-phylloxera replanting, this very meticulous viticulture that was was sort of trying to ape Northern Europe in its way, um, but with bigger, bolder flavors. Um, and so rather than look at, well, how do we farm to get optimum ripeness? They just, you know, they just went for turbocharge. And uh, so the the counterpoint to that is you say, well, what's here? Rather than saying, I need to make Latour, I need to find great Cabernet vines, and I'm going to work with those. You say, well, what are what are my tools? Do I have old old Semillon that actually is really expressive? Do I have uh, old Sanceau, for instance, as you were saying, in Lodi that's 125, 130 years old, that it may be a grape that doesn't have an enormous amount of respect in the larger world, but the age of those vines gives it a sense of respect uh, and gives it a distinction that absolutely is earned. And so some of it is simply saying, well, when you take away even, even what I think the, the 70s generation had, which was we have to make the greatest Cabernets and the greatest Chardonnays in the world because we know those to be the benchmarks and maybe some Pinot Noir because we know that, you know, there's greatness in Burgundy, but, um, but those have to be the benchmarks for us regardless of the fact that uh, we're at a completely different latitude. We're in an environment that bears no resemblance whatsoever to Northern Europe. We have to follow those things because those things are the world the world's benchmarks. So now it's simply, I think, a matter of people saying, hey, I love all sorts of things. I uh, have no need to be sort of Catholic in my tastes, lower C Catholic. Uh, and I want to make wine that that re reflects sort of the, the exuberance of my palate. It was part of the problem that, yeah, we could beat the Bordelais at the ripeness game, but the Australians regularly beat us at the ripeness game? I mean, was it like, well, we're a big fish, but they're a bigger fish, and, you know, and they swallow us every time a vintage comes out in terms of if, if big fruit is our game and we're not quite the best at that game because there's somebody else who's even warmer, was did that, you know, require a market retrenchment? A little. I mean, I, I think within within a specific uh, within a specific slice, Australia, you know, the sort of the the era of big Barossa Shiraz, you know, certainly had its role. But but some of it was simply those wines were never going to reach beyond a certain point because they could never command that level of money um, that Cabernet could to to the point of sort of using Latour or you know or Margot as a benchmark. Um, you know, there could be a few great wines from Australia, but they were they were always going to be um, sort of limited in their way um, because they, you know, they just, they didn't have a specific reference point. I, I think the other thing though, is we, you know, California made wines that were absolutely as kind of, you know, sort of abundantly over the top. Um, but it was also that there, one, you know, people would sell her those wines. And, and you know, if you look at, say, the 1997 vintage out of, out of California, um, those were wines that people were told were going to be some of the best wines ever, vintage of the century, et cetera, et cetera. And then the same people who came to that conclusion, for the most part, I should say, um, within 
eight or 10 years have basically concluded that, yeah, these wines maybe didn't have a shelf life. And then the question was, well, does anyone care? Are there consumers who care? Are there consumers who are willing to save these? And going back to that notion of how world-class are world-class wines? Well, if your wine only has uh, a lifespan of eight or 10 years, and you have been told that this is one of the true great wines of the world, 98, 99, 100 points, whatever it is, uh, and it's sort of, you know, at at best is not evolving, is not becoming more complex, is simply kind of in stasis, um, and at worst is kind of sort of falling off into the abyss. Um, at some point, you've got to start questioning whether um, there was sort of, there was a misperception about the true quality of those wines. Um, but I mean, let's also be be honest about it. You know, it's not like Bordeaux just sat there and, and maintained its rectitude uh, while California ran away with uh, with all the fruit. Um, you know, Bordeaux absolutely chased after California and wanted more ripeness, wanted sorting tables, wanted to you know to bring in concentrators and everything they could uh, to try and get in the game because that was a benchmark California set for Cabernet. Um, I think some of it was simply there was there was an inevitable limit to how much people wanted these overwhelming kind of big flavor wines. And frankly, there was, there was an emerging generation of wine co- consumers who had no interest in, in that. At best, it was what their parents had drunk. And they just, they, they had that same omnivorous palate. They were sitting around drinking Beaujolais or drinking, you know, carbonic wine from, uh, from the Jura, let's say, or Sauvignon. And so, Either California could offer something to them that was relevant, or it could sort of stay in its ivory tower. When I look at other countries, like Italy will come to mind to a certain extent, Spain, what I see a lot is that they're rejecting French varietals and going back to indigenous varieties that are in their country uh, for thousands of years that you know weren't getting a lot of play in the 90s in terms of bottlings, that weren't drawing a market, and that were often disparaged. Uh, but now... Those are being bottled and championed and quite successful, apparently, in the market. When I look at California, okay, well, if you take those same French varietals and you say we're not going to grow those anymore, you're going to say, well, we're going to do less Cabernet, we're going to do less Merlot, we're going to do less Pinot. What's left? Well, I mean, there aren't a lot of indigenous grape varieties. It's not a lot of Venus vinifera. I guess you could say mission. I guess you could say, well, whatever. the finest mission in the world. Well, I mean, I'd like to try that wine. But, I mean, I guess you could say, well, whatever's old that's around. You know, people going out to Lodi or the Sierra Foothills and being like, what's 100 years old that's around? Or you could say, let's start over and think about what they're doing in the Jura and see if that's going to work here, you know, because that's what the market's interested in these days. So where does that leave us if if there's a retrenchment uh, in, in regards to what was traditionally thought of as the great varieties that matter? And we're not going to use those as heavily anymore or they're less popular when we try to sell them. What What happens next? It's interesting. There's there's a chapter in the book called The Secret Life of Grapes. And and it starts with the proposition that that what do you grow in a land of plenty when you don't really have a historic benchmark? It's already kind of a stretch to say that, let's say, France has very specific notions as to exactly what should be where it is. It has, of course, the Appalachian system, um, but it's a you know that's a work in progress. That's not sort of this this divine provenance. Italy actually probably has more uh, of kind of a cultural tradition of knowing what what things grow where. But when you have California, aside from like you said, Mission, um, although even with Mission, people are now seeing the the parallels to the Canary Islands and saying, well, you know, if you can make really interesting wines and 
in the black soil of the Canary Islands, why can't you make an interesting wine from Mission? Um, but aside from Mission and Zinfandel, um, there aren't things that are specifically there. Um, so, so what grows best? It's kind of this this uncomfortable question uh, when you take it to California. Except that when when I went back and I really I started looking at the work of a, a guy named Eugene Hillgard, and he was um, in charge of uh, the state's experimental viticultural station in the late 19th century. And one of the things he did was he he compiled these reports of viticultural progress, and he would go out all over the state, um, both in experimental vineyards and elsewhere, and look at what was planted of all sorts of varieties um, and how they how they fared. You know, if, if you wanted to see how Freysia did uh, in Cupertino, there was a record of that. If you wanted to see how Grenache or Merlot did in Paso Robles, there was a record of that. And there was far more in the state in the late 19th century than I think most people have a clue about. There was um, Trousseau Noir, um, speaking of the Jura, um, that was not so much made as its own wine, but was kind of this, you know, this this sort of ripe, fleshy component to the Italian, you know, the Italian sort of field blends of the time. Um, there was Rotgitfler, there were the, the, the Veltliners, there were the sort of the full spectrum of German uh, grapes. Um, there were all sorts of Spanish grapes. There was was Teraldigo, I believe. There was Mondeuse. There were things that people didn't quite know what they were. Um, you know, Pinot Saint George, um, and and there's sort of there were all sorts of viticultural mysteries. But the point was that most of the the grapes that people are now conversant with in a 21st century context were in some way in California because it was still a land of immigrants and people were bringing over whatever they could find, whatever they knew, whatever uh, they might have been able to to take with them from from East Coast nurseries that had made it here from the from from the old world. Um, and so there was this curious, strange diversity of grapes. There were lots of field blends. There was just this sense of, uh, you go out and you plant stuff and you make wine. It wasn't this notion of, well, we're, we're going to make the finest Cabernet. Um, and it was interesting because the conclusions of the time um, would would have guided people in a very different way that, say, Merlot, for instance, was probably not a great match for most of California, um, or that Chardonnay was probably not a great match, um, if not for one thing, which was prohibition. So prohibition took what was this extraordinary body of knowledge people had about the different things that were in the field, much as you could sort of parse them through, you know, early 20th century nursery work, um, and wiped it all out. And so when things restarted, there was a little bit of that, but but the people who were really focused on quality went back to the benchmarks of the of the mid-century. They went back to Bordeaux. They went back to White Burgundy because that was simply what they knew. If you look at sort of how Chardonnay's modern history began in California, it was at Hansel, and it was uh, it was through um, James Zellerbach saying, you know. I love the wines of Burgundy. Uh, I love Montrachet, and I want Montrachet here on my hillside in Sonoma, which in a way um, is kind of gives in to the worst tendencies of California, except as it turns out, it's kind of an amazing place for that grape. And even though the, the terroir is probably entirely wrong for that grape, or at least, you know, or, or potentially for, for a lot of white grapes, that it happens to work because the quality is extraordinary, the soils are extraordinary, and it just happened to work really well. Um, but so it's it's curious now because when when all of these younger winemakers are saying, well, why not Verdello? Why not uh, Alvarello? Why not uh, Tariga Nacional? Or, or, you know, let's find, um, you know, Trousseau in Lake County and then we'll go plant some in Mendocino and we'll plant some out on the Sonoma Coast and put it in really good soil and see what we get. 
those are the same questions that Hilgard and other people were asking in the late 19th century. They are exactly quintessentially the um, the basis of what California pioneering was in wine. And so, you know, it's going to be interesting now, I think, in the next five, 10 years to see, you know, what do these things actually work? Are there are there are there varieties that do seem to stick? You know, something like Albarino, kind of improbably, something like Verdello, which, despite the fact you would expect to find it in kind of a cold area that approximated Galicia, um, seems to work really well in say Lodi or up in the foothills. Uh, and is this grape that has sort of just enough kind of sweet fruit and just enough generosity that rather than being this weird, strange, esoteric thing, is is the wine that you could give to your mom who maybe only likes to drink Chardonnay? And it's kind of this fruity, you know, pleasant, interesting, nuanced wine. Um, and so, you know, things that are esoteric are only esoteric until they're not. And I think what we're going to see is that some of the things in California are probably not going to work perfectly, but there's an awful lot of stuff that is already kind of promising, has people who are kind of dedicated to it and are showing that there is tremendous quality. So, you know, if if even 5 or 10% of kind of the, the Cabernet Chardonnay axis is chipped away to make way for the diversity of grapes that you find elsewhere in the world, then I think for California, that's a total win. One of the things that struck me about the new California is it didn't just chronicle the pioneer folks on how they were going about things, the smaller guys and what they were doing, where they were sourcing and how they were making wine, who they were looking to. But it also really chronicles the industrial side, the big names, how they're going about making wine and what that means and why a certain bottle of wine is varietally labeled as Pinot Noir and so cheap on the shelf at retail and how it gets to that place. Are we going to see a change in that, you know, as Trousseau gets more expensive, are we going to see industrial trousseau for $12.99 on the shelf one day when this generation that's younger and wants to try trousseau and Tariga National and Tintoro Rees and every other T word uh, ends up growing up and is like, yeah, I'd like to try some trousseau and I don't want to spend $40. And are they going to look and see some branded industrial thing that, you know, has 75% Trousseau in it and 25% whatever else they're trying to thin it out with in this case? Or, I mean, what's going to happen? Trousseau is an interesting example because it's actually, it's a grape that um, doesn't uh, scale anywhere in the world. I mean, you, you you won't find sort of, you know, jug wine versions of it if you go to France. Uh, but more broadly, you know, the, the thing with big wine uh, is that, um they will they will do whatever is rational. And so I, I don't know that you'd see that, but who would have thought that Moscato would be the next great hit for kind of big industrial wine? Uh, who would have thought that, that you could ever really make headway with red blends? Because probably eight or 10 years ago, no one would have thought that you could put a, an $8, $9 red blended wine on the shelf, which is essentially how California wine in sort of a big, broad way as a table wine made itself, made its history, was selling these kind of cheap blended red wines that people would drink, you know, copiously in the way that they would also in the old world. Um, so, you know, industrially, yeah, there, there's, you know, there's going to be kind of rational evolution. Uh, but I think the other piece is uh, it, the, what I call brand California, that this, this kind of industrial um, 
side of the of the wine business that grew in California out of the 1976 tasting where suddenly varietal wines, which is to say the, the $8 Chardonnays, the $8 Cabernets, the $10 Pinot Noirs, um, became things that people would buy instead of looking for cheap European wine or instead of scotch. Um, that, uh, you know, there was sort of, there was a heyday there for a while that, um, that, you know, allowed that and that allowed for really cheap grapes. Um, but something that, that California is starting to face is that, um, as cyclically tends to happen, um, they're going to run out of grapes. They're, they're still booming in sort of an industrial way. But uh, ultimately, California is not a terribly cost-effective place to make really cheap wine. And what sustained the California industry for a very long time, which is these, these very cheap wines that are simply labeled California, uh, because that covers up all the sins of geography that covers up the fact that you're you're using sort of you know not terribly well farmed wildly over irrigated you know grapes from vineyards with chemicals dropped on them in the middle of the central valley um you know, there's a limit to how much more people are going to get out of that. And we saw it not too long ago when all of these brands um, were suddenly turning to the rest of the world to go, you know, actually manage to get Riesling or Chardonnay or what have you in bottle. When, when everyone wanted cheap Pinot Noir after um, after Sideways came out, all of a sudden you'd see, uh, you know, um, maybe it was Redwood Creek, whoever it was, you know, with a Pavia designation on it. Um, so cheap, you know, cheap Pinot Noir from Italy, um, filling up what people assumed were California bottles. So, you know, the there's going to be, I think, tougher questions uh, lying ahead for sort of for big wine um, in that Land's not getting cheaper. Um, they're scrambling to try to find um, new places to plant and, and the opportunities to plant. Um, and they've got consumers who are coming online uh, who are starting to ask tougher questions. It's going to take a while. I mean, you see the, the same people who will happily buy organic spinach are not going to turn around and insist that their wine be um, sort of, um, you know, uh, sustainably and reasonably farmed and sustainably in a small s not bs kind of way um that's just you know the greenwashing that california seems to kind of have have finessed in a way um but there's going to start being tougher questions about you know where in the world are these these wines coming from where is my cheap moscato uh you know double bottle uh where is that actually from how is that being farmed and uh you know it's not going to go away but i think there's going to be discomfort and i think there's going to be more economic pressure and and frankly it's uh you know it's now becoming evident and i think back to australia australia showed this that um, there's a limit to how much you can grow your market based on really cheap wine. There's, you know, there's, there's just fundamentally going to be a point at which people are going to, um, to say, you know, that's all you can do. So in a way you sort of hope that there's, there's not going to be the, uh, the $8 Verdello or the, the $10 Trousseau only in that, um, it's a big difference between making a wine in California that's on par with its its contemporaries from around the world, you know, Albarino at sixteen or eighteen dollars that can contend with Rio Spicious, um, versus saying I'm just going to make the cheapest damn thing that I can. I'm going to make sort of gutter Riesling um, because you know there's someone out there somewhere in a supermarket who just doesn't care enough to realize what I'm up to. And how much of it is about cost? I mean, it, uh, when I think of a lot of the people in the book, I think about people who bought in early and were somehow able to keep holding on 
or who are trying to start out now either by buying in grapes and not owning or by looking uh, very far afield or by doing both? It is the fundamental conundrum for California and, and sort of the new California, which is that most of the new generation, unless their family happened to be around early on, uh, not only can't afford land of their own, but really will never have the opportunity to buy any. There's there's a few people who found ways to, to get it financed, but very few. And so one of the things I discovered is that if you look at the longer history of California, the notion of the estate, the notion that you could go out and buy your own land and make this one place that's your own, that you can chase sort of the grand dream of terroir, is an anomaly. That really there's always been this this schism between the grower and the seller. Uh, sorry, the grower and the, the winemaker, seller, C-E-L-L-A-R, but the, the field and the seller, the grower and the winemaker in California. Uh, and so really what what the new Californians are doing now, which is basically they, they not only are going out and buying grapes, but they are doing what they can. They're looking for ways to afford to pay for the farming they want. And that is really sort of the big, big change, which is rather than simply taking grapes on the open market and, and even sort of paying by the acre to tell a grower to drop fruit and to, to aim for higher quality, you know, they are going out and if they have to, they're farming it themselves. They're hit, you know, they're, they're, they're pruning vines themselves. They're, they're, you know, going out and dropping fruit. Um, I, I specifically talk about uh, the, the three partners in Ant Hill Farms, uh, which makes mostly Pinot Noir and some Syrah. And from the start, these are, these are three guys who met in the cellar at William Selliam, it became evident to them that in order for them to make the wines they wanted, they were going to not only have to kind of get great fruit and find great sites, but they were going to have to essentially go to growers with the proposition of farming it themselves, either uh, sort of sharecropping where they would give them back a percentage of fruit um, or kind of coming up with creative contracts that would essentially allow them to pay more to, to come in and do work. And it seems in some way almost fetishistic that, you know, no, please, I'm going to pay you a bunch of money and then I'm going to come and work your your field for you and do, you know, all the work that I'm supposed to be paying you to do. But ultimately, it was the the one way that they could assure that they would make wine of the quality they wanted in, in a world, in a system that simply wasn't ever going to let them go out and buy their own land. Uh, so, they found a way sort of in the modern world, in a, you know, in, in a state where there's every incentive in the world for uh, a landowner not to sell their land because of Prop 13. They found ways to control every piece of the process, which really in some ways is the only way you get to to asking those great questions about terroir. Is there a situation where there's a number of growers but not a lot of knowledge about how to really thoughtfully and in a firm outlook for marketing the wine eventually able to grow the grapes like, is there a, a knowledge uh, base that's a little bit short of what is needed for a lot of growers of grapes in California and as a whole? The growers have always been in this difficult position because, one, they, they more often than not have been working for larger wineries who are primarily interested in yield and, and who would often sort of force them into the spot market. So they were hoping to simply kind of make enough to cover their costs and maybe make a small profit. Uh, and quality really wasn't sort of in the conversation that much. But even when even when they were working for folks who who had some expectation of quality, um, there really were 
you know, there was, it ranged from what I would say was, you know, a lack of advice to generally bad advice. And some of it was um, that, you know, that certainly UC Davis had a lot of presence and had a lot of advice. Um, but often um, the advice that they were giving was simply kind of looking at the examples from the old world, looking at Northern European viticulture, and then telling them to do the same thing. Well, you know, in, in Bordeaux and, you know, in Burgundy, um, they like to use vertical positioning for, uh, for the shoots. So we're going to do that. Even though, again, California as a place to farm bears almost no resemblance. Uh, so there was never anyone who came in, aside from people very early on who were almost sort of, you know, who were typically growing bush vines or very rudimentary trellising, um, and and almost by accident found a way to kind of modulate, modulate the sunshine of California um, to, um, you know, to a system where everything had to be orderly, everything had to be kind of the way it was done in Europe, because of course Europe was the, the quality benchmark. And so now in a very small way, um, but growing, there's people who are realizing that rather than this absolute sort of, um, you know, copying of the European way, rather than uh, meticulously farming for these very high sugars. And again, remember, there was also a period of time for about 15 years where the higher the sugar, the more rewarded you would be. Um, so there's been a lot of bad sort of inputs and advice going back to growers. Um, but slowly, there's, there's, there's more and more people who are starting to say, well, what, what is really the right way to farm to get sort of moderate ripeness and interesting grapes and, and, you know, I mean, pristine grapes that will make interesting wine. And someone like, say, a Steve Mathiasen, who, aside from being a smart guy and a really good winemaker, is also the viticulturist who can come in and say, you know, I don't believe that you need to grow Cabernet to 25, 26 bricks. I think you can do it at 23. And by the way, I live in Napa, I work in Napa, and I'm proving it. So, you know, versus these, you know, kind of snot-nosed new winemakers who come in with these notions of, well, we're going to make, you know, less less ripe wines, and we're going to do this, and we're going to do that. There are people who are starting on the viticultural side to show, you know, there's no reason that we need to just do what the Europeans did. We need to find a viticulture that suits California and that can give us interesting wines of our own. Should there be an obligation amongst California winemakers, whether they be small or large, to make wines that can be affordable to a, a large audience or most of Americans? One of the things that became really interesting as I was looking through sort of, you know, what was emerging in California and how folks were working differently was not only that they had this global perspective, but that they they looked to the old world and they realized that even the best winemakers in, let's say, France had not only an interest, but a moral obligation, uh, a moral belief that they were supposed to make not only the great wines of the world, but also more modest wines, wines that were were there for every day. That if you took, um, let's say, um, uh, Emmanuel Renault at Rayas um, or Aubert de Vilaine at uh, Romanet Conti, that you know, sure, they were making wines that were two hundred dollars or two thousand dollars. They were making sort of the great wines of France, but at the same time, uh, Aubert is making uh, you know his Ali Gautier based wine um, in Bougeron, and um, Renault is making uh, Domaine des Tours, you know, his sort of his Vaucluse table wine uh, that even in the U.S. is maybe $22 a bottle. Um, and so it wasn't necessarily that they were making true cheap wine, but that they felt a need to make, uh, to bring their expertise and their talents and their skills to the rest of the population, to people who might not ever taste a bottle of DRC, but 
potentially could certainly buy a bottle uh, of Bouzeron. And so it was interesting to see that there was a subset of of new Californian winemakers, uh, including folks who'd been doing it a long time, like I said, the the Varner brothers who, you know, make this sort of exquisite Chardonnay from the Santa Cruz Mountains, but then also turn around and make kind of a, a $13 Chardonnay called Foxglove from Central Coast Fruit. Uh, and in some ways view that as their larger responsibility to, to make 30,000 cases of a $13 wine versus 400 cases of their kind of fancy single vineyard wine. Uh, and there were more and more people who believed in this. There, there were folks... Um, like uh, the Bilbro family, who has been making Marietta Cellars up in uh, in the North Coast for thirty years, and you know, rather than chasing these big scores, is simply making kind of you know the modern equivalent of an old you know sort of Italian family field blend. Um, there are people like uh, Wells Guthrie uh, at Copan, who you know had sort of perfected you know big Pinot Noir and Char- uh, and, and Syrah that um, that you know Parker went gaga over, and then sort of, you know, as much for cash flow as anything else, um, started to um, to build this line uh, called Tous Ensemble, which is not in any way sort of cheap wine, but is kind of the the equivalent of like a, a Bourgogne C, like an Appalachian wine um, that is meant to be earlier drinking and meant to, to give the same opportunity uh, to drinkers who just don't have as deep pockets. Um, as they might find in the old world. And, and again, that it's not simply economic, although certainly it doesn't hurt to make cheaper wine that people drink quicker and buy again, um, but that there in fact is a moral responsibility that if you are a great winemaker, that you can't simply rest on making $300 Cabernet, that you have functionally a responsibility to make wine for other people, because if you don't, then industrial wine is gonna take those customers then you're you're essentially giving up people who might have the opportunity to become your fancy customers one day, uh, but certainly who have an interest in wine, who have a palate for wine, who have a love of it. Um, and and you know if if you if you don't take the opportunity to court them and to give them something that's meaningful to drink, then they're going to go away, and then then they become a lost cause. So one of the things that struck me about how the book is written is that it uh, seems to be a story of almost kind of personal revelation for yourself. It's it's almost kind of like what has struck you. Uh, and there's a lot of um, in-the-place anecdotes, like then Tegan turned to me and said, type of quotes. Um, why did you choose to structure it that way in terms of, hey, this is the kind of route that I took to figuring some of this out, kind of taking people along almost geographically, like, hey, now we're in Lodi, now we're in Contra Costa. Um, what's the advantage of that approach? I, I think what became clear uh, as I started to write was that this was ultimately a personal journey for me. This was me going out and discovering these places and and kind of trying from, from a position of kind of disappointment and frustration, uh, getting back to uh, a place of love, getting back to uh, things that excited me and that interested me. Uh, and that certainly, you know, after no shortage of having written newspaper copy um, and having not put myself in the story, that it was ultimately a personal story. And it was a story that I had to tell based on what I went and saw and what what spoke to me and what interested me. Uh, and, and really, it's, you know, I, I think... I think we all might revolt if we have another sort of straightforward encyclopedic wine book. I, I think 
everyone's done that before. Uh, so when I looked at the the books that interested me, there were, there were two in particular. One was Vino Italiano um, from David Lynch and Joe Bastianich. The other one was Andrew Jeffords' New France, um, both of which have some personal discussion, but ultimately are, are survey books and do try to cover uh, cover ground comprehensively. But, um, but they were trying to find a way to tell a very different story, in their case, about sort of established places. Uh, and for me, it became this question of, well, I, you know what? No one needs another California survey wine book. So why don't I go and talk about the places that are interesting to me, that that I discovered and that were curious, and the experiences that that showed me why different places matter. There, there's there's a piece in the in the chapter about farming um, when I go with. Um, with Duncan Myers from Arnott Roberts um, and some other folks to see a, a vineyard called uh, Lagan up in the Santa Cruz Mountains, uh, and they get into this kind of scuffle with the the then vineyard manager over uh, whether they were going to use Roundup and how much. And the, the vineyard manager says, "Oh man, you can drink that stuff." Uh, and Duncan says, "Well, that's what the folks at Monsanto want you to think." And so I, I felt like there were there were too many moments that for me captured sort of where where the heads of, of the new California winemakers were to just make this another straightforward book that I had to sort of take people on the journey. And and part two of the book is very specifically called A Road Trip um, because it was just my different, you know, travels around the state and going up to the foothills and seeing these crazy soils and going out to sort of the back end of Lodi and uh, seeing that, uh, you know, even in the middle of these kind of big industrial vineyards, there were people who were interested in in, in farming by asking the right questions that, um, that you know, that um, when I went out to Paso Robles and started driving out to uh, toward the ocean and actually seeing vineyards that I'd seen years earlier, um, that there were people who were saying, you know, why does one place or other here have to um, particularly be the only place we're making wine? And rather than just sort of subdividing based on the usual politics that infuse every kind of appellation, um, you know, are there, uh, do we really know enough yet to to sort of set everything in stone or do we need to keep kind of asking questions? Um, and so in some way it was just uh, trying to, trying to tell what is very much a nonlinear story by simply taking people on, on bits and pieces of the journey. And it feels like often when you go into a place, you characterize or sum up what is on going on in the left hand and then the tension of what is going on in the right hand in that place. And that's sort of made explicit at the end of each terroir chapter where you talk about the risks in a, in a kind of a dialogue box, which is something that uh, Jeffer did. Uh, as well, when he did the New France, he said, you know, here's what could be a problem with the future of the Rhone. Here's the promise of the future of the Rhone. Um, it's never bad to copy brilliant ideas. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a book that I happen to really like as well. But did it often feel to you like you were looking at kind of a the, for the hidden tension or the not so hidden tension in each region? I actually didn't have to look very hard uh, for for it in any region because um, in almost everywhere I went, um, in a way, uh, and there isn't a Napa chapter, but in in some way it would have been interesting to um, to, to talk about that. Although goodness knows there's going to be plenty of, of of to debate in the book about Napa, but um, but I think underlying uh, almost every region is this tension between the people who are pioneering there and, and sort of moving forward and the folks who kind of found a, maybe a, an easy way to be successful. If you look, for instance, in the, in the chapter on Santa Rita Hills and Santa Barbara, um, 
really most of the discussion in that chapter is about um, the the folks who are sort of trying to push ahead and realize realize there really is some amazing amazing terroir there um, uh, against the folks who um, are you know who benefited enormously from one of the things that that area can do, which is to give you this ridiculously long moderate, cool growing season so that you can ripen grapes to just about any point you want without them kind of falling apart. Uh, it's kind of like this big, long refrigerator in Santa Barbara in, in diatomaceous earth uh, and shale. And so there was enormous reward, again, in the big flavor era for for wines that uh, really sort of went, you know, wildly over the top. Uh, and now there are uh, a new generation of folks, uh, like, say, Sandy, um, who have come in and said, you know, we're going to pick four or five weeks earlier. We just, we believe we can make a different, more relevant, more interesting style of wine here. Uh, and in the case of Santa Rita, it's interesting because all of them are basically stuck in these little warehouses in the town of Lompoc and have to kind of live with each other every day. Um, and there is tension and, and, you know, there is this, this difficulty of how, <clears throat> how you deal with these folks who have radically different beliefs than you in what makes great wine when you run into them in the supermarket. Is there a history of that in California in terms of, uh, religious orders going out there to find peace and then <coughs> finding neighbors that they didn't really like because they had different ideas? And is there a history of and maybe an idealization of pioneers in California that almost makes us resent those who have settled in a little bit? Do we think of it as a place that's supposed to be in, in permanent pioneership? In some way, but, it, you know, California is because it was always a, a beacon of the new. It was always trying to establish its longer history. If you, if you, grow up in California, which I did not. But if you grow up in California, you spend a lot of time learning about California history and the the history of the missions and how it really had this alternate history from the U.S. that, that in fact, sort of does date back as far uh, as um, the American history as we would view it on the East Coast, um, but just had, obviously, a, an enormous Spanish influence, had a, a Mexican influence, um, was just different. The, the thing that's interesting now is that, you know, in a way, California is still uh, the symbol of, of, of the American new, but it's not that new anymore. It's, it, it does have a long history, and even in wine, it has a long history. Uh, and so um, I don't know that, that people had – I don't know that there's a tension specifically between the folks who are working now in, in a very contemporary way and, uh, and folks who've been there a long time. In, in some way, in fact – um, they are probably going back and exalting the folks who really have been there a long time. You you look at say you talk, you talked about Tegan Tegan Pasalacqua, who's the the winemaker and viticulturist at Turley, um, and here's a guy who not only is uh, uh, you know a, a third generation Napin, uh, although the first generation in his family to to make wine, um, but someone who's going out to the these old Portuguese farmers out in the back of Contra Costa County is just a place that really and truly nobody has cared about for a long time. Um, but does have some extraordinary kind of deep sand soils that are beautiful for Zinfandel and has 100-year-old Zinfandel vines. And he's the guy who's going out and saying, you know what, I realize you've kind of gotten the shaft from everyone who's come before. But is that I the cordon or is that I – mean, <laughs> a little joke a, for the wine geeks and the listeners. Trellising yeah. jokes. Yeah. We're, we're, we fight, we've, we've hit rock bottom. <laughs> 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 yeah. Um, but, you know, but, but to go out and say, you know what, 
I believe you have a great vineyard. I believe you can grow great grapes. I want to help you do that. And I'm going to, I'm going to pay you for them. And I'm going to sort of get you to where you need to be to farm organically, to farm really well, and to, to, to be treated with respect. And there's a lot of these, we, we were talking about old, old vines before. There's a lot of these vineyards that are out there that just have, have kind of somehow managed to survive, but no one ever really cared. And so Tegan is a, a perfect example of someone who said, I care, I'm going to go out and I'm going to sort of save these because I think they're important. Um, and luckily happens to have Larry Turley's money and, and sort of willingness and interest um, to do that. And, and in some ways, that's this amazing public service for California wine. Um, but there's, but there's a lot of other uh, folks within kind of the, the, the new California um, who are interested in sort of going back to what they can salvage of the past and really trying to preserve it and trying to show that there is a continuity. This isn't just all uncharted. We, we don't have all the answers, but we don't need to. We, we can, we can build on the things that we know and the things that are proven and the, the, the vineyards that we know are, are interesting and good and maybe have fallen off the map, we can put them back on. And then what isn't here that interests us, we'll start planting it and we'll start building building out on the culture that was there and that was forgotten and and bringing it back to kind of a contemporary uh, mode that, that people pay attention to. One of the things I notice when I read uh, wine books about, say, France is... Uh, when I read a book about Burgundy, there's a big part about Pomar uh, that goes on for quite a bit in terms of the terroir of Pomar, where it is. And then it'll segue maybe into Comte d'Armand and it'll talk about, um, you know, the holdings of Comte d'Armand and what Comte d'Armand controls, the bottlings that they make. And then right before it finishes, it might be like, and then Benjamin LaRue was there for a second, you know, like that. I mean, a second in the text, like it'll mention him in passing. Um, or when I talk about, uh, when I read a book that's about Bordeaux, it'll talk about Oprion and it'll talk about Samuel Pepe's and the long, long history. But, you know, if it ever gets to uh, the current prince who's in charge, uh, I don't know, you know, if, if it ever really talks about him. Um, but I notice every, well, I don't want to say every, but quite often when we talk about California, uh, there's these boldface names. There's heroes, there's gladiators on the scene, they're making changes. And I don't mean just your book. I mean, like Helen Turley. I mean, like Robert Mondavi. Like, is it really important for us to understand California through the human, uh, through the figure, through that guy walking through the landscape where it doesn't seem as important every other time? I mean, when I think about Barbera producers, I think about Barbera. I don't think about, you know, a dude that looms large over the, the Barbera trellis, you know? So, yeah, I mean, California loves cult of personality. But um, the thing is that, in a way, you have to look at the, the people who are important only in that, um, again, this timeline we're looking at is so short um, that there's no way to talk about California without talking about the people who've transformed it, whether it was a Robert Mondavi sort of saying, I believe that, you know, we can make wines as great as the great wines of the world, or a, Hel a Helen Turley, who, whatever anyone may think of her wines, you know, absolutely did, uh, did sort of set out the pinnacle of what kind of, you know, this, this big sort of robust uh, era was going to be. Um, and, you know, and brought California a very specific sort of success. Um, and the thing 
the thing that struck me in, in dealing with the issue of terroir and, and, and place in California, because there's, there's always this temptation for people to say, well, you know, you're talking about terroir in California. It's, you know, it's a little pretentious. So, you know, aren't you kind of, you kind of overstepping, um, was actually something that Ted Lemon said. And again, this is a guy who, you know, who went to Burgundy in his early twenties, uh, and was the, the pine, the, the strange American who they were actually willing to let into the cellar was, his conclusion when he came back to California and was sort of looking around was um, that that the French sort of love this notion of terroir. The Europeans do, but that uh, I think his phrasing was that you know terroir wasn't something that came down on a moonbeam from God. That you know the reasons for French terroir, the reason for the Grand Cru, sure had a lot to do with uh, the monks in Burgundy, but also had to do with politics, had to do with the will of the powerful, had to do with where there were effective transportation corridors. I mean, um, there was great terroir. There is great terroir in Roussillon, but um, God knows Paris was never going to pay attention to it. Uh, and so, um, so one of the interesting things with California, one of the things I think that speaks to its favor is that this notion of established terroir where everything is written in stone, you pick up a book about France, and this is actually where the new France was super interesting, is um, is based on its own set of pretense, uh, that it, 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 it isn't written in stone, that, that sure, the, the, uh, the Inau says, these are the Grand Cru of Burgundy, uh, and there shall be no more until, of course, they decide to make more. Um, and that when uh, the Burgundians are sort of shoveling dirt from the bottom of the hill back up to the top, that, you know, that it's not that there's some some pristine land that can never be touched. Uh, it's that, um, you know, they're, they're trying to make the best of what they believe to be is great land, but there is an enormous human influence, probably more than most books actually give credit for. Um, and so... What I would say is, in in a California context, is at some point you have to talk about, say, the Henri Jaillets or the Paul Pontaliers, or uh, for better or worse, you know, the, the Angelo Gaias, the folks who said, "This is not. This is may. This may be how it was done before, but." I want to do this differently. I I believe that this is not the best path to greatness for my my home, um, and. So yeah, there's there's totally a cult of personality in California. I would be uh, delusional if I didn't acknowledge that the reason that an awful lot of winemakers get into it in California is not out of this great sort of old world sense of humility, but because they want to be rock stars. You know, they want to drive around in Aston Martins and they want, you know, they want everyone to love them. They want to be flown around on jets. But um, but out of that, there there is um, there is talent. And honestly, I think there's probably more humility now among this emergent generation than there's been for a long time. And there are people sort of asking questions in all seriousness uh, and coming to it with less of a desire to just be famous, in part, again, because uh, I think the money equation is very different. If you if you show up in California, you love wine, you believe there's greatness out there to be found, you happen to be totally broke uh, and looking to figure out how to make wine sort of, you know, in any kind of Band-Aid system you can, um, then you're going to start asking very different questions than if you're, um, you know, some software guy who shows up in Napa with 50 million, buys a, you know, your fake chateau and, and starts sort of creating a temple to greatness. Um, it, it's just, there's a fundamental humility there that I think gets closer to how you start to answer these, these really fundamental questions anywhere in the world about what makes great wine. 
Are we seeing the development of just multiple audiences and thus multiple wines and, in, in a way, multiple critics to criticize those wines? I like a lot of the wines that you talk about in a New California. Those are wines that I would buy. Those are people that I follow. Those are wineries that I watch. Um, I imagine that there's a lot of people who buy the wines that aren't in that book, that maybe they don't go to New York where I live, but maybe they go to, you know, other states where there's strong markets, you know, maybe the South, maybe Middle Western states, uh, because it seems like when I talk to those winemakers, they're not like running scared. They're kind of like, well, people like our wines and we have a market for them and we're happy with them. And in fact, we think this is the right way. So. Is it just going to turn out that there's, you know, going to be multiple sides of the street and, you know, these guys are going to hang over there and other people are going to hang over here? Well, it's interesting with the South because um, one of the things I'm always curious about is is where where the wines that I'm writing about are are resonating beyond sort of New York and San Francisco. Uh, and in fact, there is an enormous enormous interest um, in the South, in the Midwest, um, in parts you know in, in certain cities in Texas for um, for the sorts of wines that that I'm writing about. Um, and and I always remember this moment when I walked into um, the Ordinary in Charleston, South Carolina. And saw um, the Arnott Roberts Trousseau by the glass, which is a wine that I do not think you can actually get in San Francisco by the glass. Um, so, you know, there's, yeah, I think Californians always believe, well, you know, if New York hates us, we'll take it out to the hinterlands, um, which is arrogance in a way I can't even begin to describe. But, um, but I think that there's interest all over. You know, look, there's going to be a while where, um, where, yeah, absolutely, the, the the big flavor era of wines is 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 not going away. They have an audience, they have an economic model, and and quite frankly, there's a lot of people who I think are invested in it to the point that they may not even like their own wines anymore, but they know they have to make wines in this style because that's where they've evolved to. Uh, what I would always caution is that's today. And I think 10 years from now, you're going to see a radically different market. You're going to see uh, a, a generation of wine consumers that's a lot more informed than their parents were. Their parents, meantime, are getting older. They're they're not going to stop drinking wine, but um, but I don't think it's a growth market. Uh, and so there's going to be an evolution. And 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 honestly, um, there's going to be a generational change among sort of the established names of California. People are going to, to face a question as to... Um, you know, as to what kind of wine they want to make. And I think that depending on how the market reacts, they're going to either make changes or not. They're going to start farming better or not. They're going to start changing their style of wine or not. I mean, Camus certainly is doing well enough that um, that Joe Wagner is is in no way sort of, you know, planning to to change the the style that his dad set out. And, you know, Mayomi is uh, a super success for sort of a, you know, relatively conventional Pinot Noir. Now, 10 years from now, is that going to be sustained or is there going to be a change? That's That to me is interesting because, yeah, it's it's been... What what I really mostly documented was folks who came in asking interesting questions and wanting to do something different. Um, but there's going to have to be a reverberation into the legacy California market. It's just, it's inevitable. Only in that uh, the folks who have not faced these questions for a while, or who made a decision in, say, the early 90s that they were going to um, pursue a path that, you know, gave them the Parker scores they wanted, whatever it was, um, you know, things are changing. And, and you sort of asked about multiple voices. Um, I think that's really what's going to um, drive a lot of it, which is that, yeah, for, you know, 15 or 20 years, there's functionally been, let's say, really two voices um, with some other sort of, you know, side notes um, that have defined what was going to um, 
uh, be considered success in California. And that's diversifying. And then I'm not simply saying that as someone who happens to be a critic of California wine and, you know, reviews things and recommends things. Um, but simply in the sense that, you know, even my role is going to be changing in that, um, you know, I, I can offer perspective and I can tell interesting stories and I can hopefully point out interesting people as they emerge um, before the rest of the world gets to them. Um, but, you know, there's a whole lot of people, there's millions of wine consumers who are going to be a whole lot more interested in what they see on Delectable or what they see on Facebook than in what I have to say or what any critic who's handing out numbers has to say. And I think there's no way that that doesn't massively change the way that California wine does business. 25 years, 30 years from now, the next new California book gets written. What are they going to talk about? And will global warming play a factor in what they talk about? What I hope is that at that point that they're talking about, you know, what we'll call the backbenchers of grapes and how they've not only sort of found a, a, a role in the market in California, but also that they're um, that they've found kind of their happy place. They found the terroirs where they really do thrive. And, you know, here's, you know, this band in Placerville where there's, you know, 50 acres of Gamay versus the three or four that's there now, um, or Vermentino or, you know, the, the great Grenache, uh, area of Paso Robles or whatever it is that, um, that there's more of a sense of surety about where the great terroirs are. Uh, I would love it if, um, God forbid, um, there were actually vines at that point that are 25 or 30 years old rather than this kind of forced 15 to 20 year replanting. Uh, and that people are able to talk about kind of mature vines from, you know, from, from mass selection, um, that really reflect kind of a, a genetic adaptation to California, um, that people are making wines again, that have sort of a relevance to the diversity of the rest of the world. And that really, if nothing else, show the great, the great uniqueness of California, which is that it can do all of these things. It's not sort of, you know, it's not a, a copy of Bordeaux. It's not a copy of Burgundy. It is this amazing place that is able to encompass all of these different terroirs, all of these different climates, all of these different opportunities. Um, and yeah, I mean, climate change will inevitably have uh, a, a piece of that. But again, you know, if people are actually starting to ask questions about, well, oh yeah, it's actually not that cold here and it's not like Bordeaux and uh, we don't get rain at the same time. We don't get the same diurnal uh, shifts. So how do we farm for a place that's Mediterranean and warm at kind of a mild latitude? Uh, and how do we find the opportunities and the paths to greatness? If, if we can get to even a piece of that in 25 years, I think that California will have accomplished something extraordinary. John Bonet, thank you very much for being here today. It's a pleasure. John Bonet has just released a new book called The New California. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Skella has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. 
That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.